I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there, welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this week's episode, we're talking about Teladoc and Livongo merging to form a digital healthcare giant. Which of the big tech companies should be most concerned about the antitrust hearings? and the lessons we can learn from the dot-com crash. So guys, um, we opened the show last time with some great feedback about the podcast and in particular, some great compliments about the host's accent. Um, Rory, I know you're a little bit sceptical about who the host of this show actually was, but you'll be really glad to know that the same listener got back in touch with us after the last episode to confirm that they were, and I quote, absolutely talking about James. Um, okay yeah 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 i saw the tweet look there's no accounting for taste i suppose you know i think i was actually thinking afterwards this is probably the very first time a man from kildare has ever been complimented about his accent so i'm that's gotta be true yeah for me yeah that's it's definitely uh it's definitely the first time for everything so we've lots of things to get through on today's show but let's first come to some probably some of the biggest news from this week and that is that teledoc and livongo are set to merge um, for those who might not know, Teladoc is one of the largest virtual healthcare companies in the world, while Livongo is a company that uses data to provide healthcare solutions for those living with chronic illnesses like diabetes and hypertension. On Wednesday of this week, it was announced that the companies had come to an agreement which will see Livongo merge into the Teladoc brand. Livongo shareholders, who have already had a really good year this year with a stock up close to sixfold before yesterday's news, will receive roughly 0.6 shares of Teladoc for every Livongo share they hold, as well as a cash payout of about $11.33 per share. Um, Roy, I'll come to you first on this. Teladoc is, I think it's the second or third most successful stock pick in the My Wall Street shortlist to date. Um, wh- what do you think of this deal? Is this a good news for Teladoc and Livongo shareholders? Well, I mean, first of all, I just think it's incredible, isn't it, that this kind of small telemedicine company that we brought into the app, what was it, two, three years ago now, is now involved in the third largest acquisition of 2020. Yeah, um, just just this morning we were writing about it and I saw our, our colleague Jamie wrote that before the coronavirus pandemic, both companies were worth a combined 10 billion. And yesterday, Teladoc acquired Livongo for $18.5 billion dollars. Yeah, look, I mean, just it shows the rapid rise both these companies have had. I think uh, over the last 12 months, Teladoc stock is up about threefold, whereas Livongo is up about sixfold. You know, this, these these companies have been on incredible runs recently. Um, and it was a shock. Like, this was shocking news. Uh, Emmett, you sent me the the WhatsApp of the, the story, and I was just like, oh, my God. Okay, like, this came out of nowhere. There was usually you kind of get some sense of kind of chatter, but... 
uh, this was two businesses that we, well, one of them was obviously in the showroom. Another one was we were keeping a close eye on. James, I know you pitched the company a couple of months ago and uh, we should have listened to you back then, I suppose. But, um, well, I didn't want to the, start the podcast off with two yeah. boasts. But, uh. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it was just, it's so rare that you pitch anything decent. So, yeah, you stop clock. Um, I look, you know, when mergers happen, I think the the initial thing is always to have a massive dose of skepticism about them. That's that should be your default position because the vast majority of uh, acquisitions turn out to be disasters or at least are diluted to shareholders. Um, there are a couple of companies we know that are very good at it. I think PayPal is the one we constantly mention. They're great at those little bolt-on acquisitions and have a great history of making um, making good moves in the, in the space. Uh, Teladoc has as well, you know, Teladoc has a history of, of good acquisitions and, and, and bolt-on acquisitions and have executed quite well over the years in, in bringing businesses together. You know, the, the deal uh, is an interesting one. It's a, it's it's almost a merger of equals in some ways. You know, it's um, Livongo shareholders getting about 0.6 of a share of Teladoc plus about $11 in cash. It's already been unanimously approved by both boards. It should be completed by the end of the year. And, you know, just going back to that, the speed at which these companies were growing, you know, visits in the second quarter for Teladoc, which they released uh, just last week, were up 203%. Um, wow. That's amazing. Incredible. And, like, obviously, we're in special circumstances now with coronavirus and people wanting to stay away from doctor's offices. Um, but Livongo was equally, in fact, growing even faster. You know, this was a, a company that was uh, seeing 123% revenue growth. 113% growth in their um, diabetics patients on the platform. Uh, for those who don't know, by the way, Livongo is a kind of virtual healthcare SaaS company, essentially. It provides hardware tools to let patients to check their blood sugar levels, check their blood pressure levels, and provides kind of coaching services to help them manage chronic diseases. And chronic diseases are uh, is a huge, huge market opportunity. Um, they reckon that 90% of all healthcare spending in the U.S. is linked to people with chronic healthcare conditions. Uh, there's 147 million people in the U.S. with such conditions, 40% with two or more, and it costs wow. the U.S. economy $3.7 trillion to treat these people. So it is a massive, massive, massive opportunity. And what this does for Teladoc, obviously, is it's, it's they're trying to grow out a, a full healthcare platform that can be delivered in a virtual space. And this is just another add-on to that. This is now, there's only so much they can do by just talking to patients. They need to get data from patients. And Livongo has has the hardware to do that um you know Livongo shareholders i have to say are not very happy about this if you uh there's a couple of um very bullish Livongo shareholders on twitter pro saxon is, is probably the most famous one who sold the shares immediately at, the, at this news uh and you know I, feel, I think a lot of them are kind of feeling a bit hard done by they were invested in this rapidly growing SaaS company with 100 percent recurring revenues and uh, now they're kind of feeling like they're being part of a larger, slower growing healthcare platform that's not going to yeah. deliver the same results. And, you know, look, that's probably true. <laughs> it's not it's, it, it's not going to uh, grow quite as fast as Livongo was because they're working off a, a much smaller revenue base. Um, and that's just the way that's the law of large numbers. But, you know, I like I said, we've seen great execution from Teladoc in the past in terms of mergers and acquisitions. This is going to expand their addressable market massively. Uh, it's still going to be written by Jason Gorovich, who's done a great job. And, you know, I'm a shareholder of Teladoc. I'm holding on to my shares. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's so such early days. It's hard to predict what's going to happen with a merge of this size. But 
I, I think we've got good, good evidence that it could work out well. Yeah, as you mentioned there, Rory, um, the shareholders of both companies didn't seem too pleased with the, the news. Um, Teladoc shares fell 20% on the day um, by close. Uh, Emmett, is this something you typically see when there, there's news of mergers? I know Peter Lynch often talked about diversification and that, you know, in many cases, um, when companies buy um, or when companies acquire other companies, it can actually be a negative thing. We saw that with Eventbrite a few years ago when they bought Ticketfly. Um, are, are investors correct to be sceptical about uh, mergers like this? Um, acquisitions and mergers are notoriously difficult to make work. So generally what happens when one business acquires the other is that on paper, you know, you can see where you'll take costs out and you'll combine, uh, for example, a single accountancy and finance function and you'll, you'll, you'll combine other functions in the business. But in reality, when you go to do it, it's the merging of cultures and the way people interact and work and is usually makes it very difficult for an acquisition. And I think that that's what Peter Lynch was referring to one up on Wall Street, that diversification, as he calls it, is a, is the type of growth you really don't want to seek out. Now, when it happens, you have to look at a couple of things. The first is, what is that company's track history of success and acquisitions? And as Rory already said, Teladoc has made a very fine job of its past acquisitions. So I personally don't fear that the uh, the business can't make it work. Then, of course, there's product fit. So, you know, you acquire a company effectively if you want to enter, get new products or enter new markets. And um, what what's happening with this marriage today is that Teladoc, in my mind, is way better. It's a better investment and it's 20% down. I think what we're looking at here is, a, is I suppose, analogous to like maybe, uh, and this is really stretching it, but when Google bought um, YouTube at the yeah. time, Everyone just thought that's a preposterous amount of money to pay for something that's just not really related to search. And there was an awful lot of noise at the time. But in reality, today, those shareholders who feel slightly let down are right in doing so because they're, what they had anticipated, their projection of the future has suddenly changed. But I think that those shareholders either side of the line, if whether you own shares in both companies or just one, if you simply just hold on to your new empowered Teladoc shares, I'm of the mind, uh, you're looking at a multi-multi-decade winner. Because I think that right now Teladoc has positioned itself to be so far at the forefront of digital uh, healthcare that it really, the, the second best is quite a, a long way away behind them. Um, and, and I suppose in the coronavirus world, the changes that we've all seen, the less we can go and see a doctor in person, the less we can do it as strangers in person, the better. Yeah, I think like a lot of the a lot of the, the sell off yesterday was 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 kind of valuation based as well. Someone um, someone noted that the combined company is going to be trading at a multiple of about 19 times revenue based on 2021 estimates. And that's historically high to what Teladoc has traded in the past. So there was just a little bit of readjustments um, in the markets. You know, it's it's that's a high estimate for any company. You got to remember the company is expecting to grow annual sales of between thirty and forty percent for the next few years. So it's it's not totally unreasonable. But I, I can see why there was a bit of a sell off yesterday when they when they put all the numbers together. 
Absolutely. Uh, so moving on then. So in the last episode of Stock Club, we talked about TikTok and the pressure it was facing from the US government. In the last two weeks, um, an awful lot has happened. President Trump has threatened to ban the app from the US with almost immediate effect until Microsoft stepped in and offered to buy TikTok's operations in the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Um, this offer by Microsoft seemed to appease President Trump somewhat although he's still determined that the Treasury Department should get a cut of any deal that TikTok makes with Microsoft. And if the app isn't bought off its parent company, ByteDance, by the 15th of September, it'll be shut down completely. Rory, um, you made a joke that whenever you go on annual leave or go on vacation, a lot of happens. Uh, and this, this is certainly a case of that. Can you untangle some of this mess that's happening with, with TikTok at the moment? Yeah, I mean the annual the, the annual leave curse is still very much strong on me. Uh, not only did they have the antitrust uh, testimonies, but then this whole TikTok thing kicked off. Um, it's been a bizarre few weeks uh, in the world of tech. This is by far one of the most strange um, things that I've seen happen over the years. Uh, there's look, look, TikTok presented a, a problem for the US. We talked about it during the last podcast about. I think a lot of people look at TikTok and they think, oh, it's videos of people dancing and videos of cats talking and uh, all this kind of stuff. And why would that be a, a national security risk? But it was, if you look at it seriously and think about the way the company operates and think about the, the laws in China regarding data, you could see the potential for big problems. And I think that's what, what they were looking at. You have to kind of think of the big picture here and what could potentially happen. Um it's a, it, there's so many kind of moving parts to this, considering like the relationship that China has had with U.S. tech companies in the past. You know, you, people go, well, why would you ban TikTok in the U.S.? And then you remember, you know, every single U.S. Internet business is banned in China uh, yeah. pretty much as, def as default. Uh, so, you know, they don't really have much of a leg to stand on in terms of like uh, complaining to the U.S. government about a, an Internet company not being allowed to operate. But what's... The, first of all, the, the, the President Trump asking for the, the kickback to the Treasury really kind of muddied the waters of this. You know, this, this is starting to look a bit like a shakedown rather than a, something that has uh, implications for national security. There were so many options they could have taken in terms of how to manage this, how to ensure that there was more transparency into where the data was going. They could have just, you know, rewritten the rule books a bit to make things a bit safer. Instead, they've kind of gone with this gung ho scorched earth policy with TikTok and yeah. Microsoft appears to be the major beneficiary. And, you know, I wrote a piece this week about, you know, Microsoft has spent pretty much since Satya Denella started and spent the last five years moving out of the consumer facing uh, market because in truth, they're just not very good at it. They're, they're bad at making uh, customer facing products. They're much better equipped to build uh, incredible enterprise solutions business, which has seen the stock go up, I think, fivefold since Nadella took over. So this is a, a big kind of U-turn for them where they're, they're going back into a space that they have pretty much no experience in. They don't have the, the teams prepared to be able to manage something like this. And that's a, you know, that brings up the question, well, why are they doing it? You know, they, yeah. they do have an advertising business. I think people forget about Bing, which, is, which brings in about $7 billion a year. Uh, even though I've never met a single person who uses it, but you know, there you go. They they have they have an advertising business, so you know that there is a, a crossover there with TikTok, which I think will end up being one of the most successful advertising businesses we've seen in an awful long time. Um, 
the other reason that they're doing it is because they can and no one else can, <laughs> which is which is quite interesting. You know, they are going to if if this goes ahead and they end up being able to acquire TikTok's business, whether it be the whole business or whether it be, as was discussed, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand business, um, they are going to get this for an absolute steal. Like you're talking about the hottest property in tech that is expected to grow multifold over the next couple of years based on its popularity and its download metrics. And there's pretty much no one else who can who can come in and, and take it off them, you know, like Yeah, that was a that was a very interesting point you made in your article and, and I'd like to delve into that a little bit more, you know, when you think of potential suitors for TikTok of of the, the five or six big tech companies, Microsoft is probably last on the list that most people would think. So why aren't the Googles, Facebooks, Apples, why aren't they lining up to, to get TikTok? Well, you got you got to remember that as this story was breaking, the the CEOs of those four companies were sitting, or well, they weren't sitting there, but they were virtually sitting in a congressional yeah. hearing about antitrust and anti-competitive behavior. So, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg would absolutely love to buy TikTok. He, that would he would fall like fall over himself to buy it, but he can't. There's no way yeah. that they will allow Mark Zuckerberg to buy TikTok at this at this point, considering what's going on with antitrust. Uh, Google's in a similar position, you know, they're getting questions over YouTube and their 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 practices. I reckon, you know, Amazon, I don't, they've never really had any interest in the social space. They have a big interest in the advertising space, but I I feel that Bezos is very much trying to keep himself under the radar while they while they slowly creep into the healthcare sector. Um, and Apple, yeah. look, Apple is, it could be a great suitor. I think Apple, TikTok would kind of fit into Apple's business quite well, but Apple has shown over the years that they really have very little interest in advertising you know they didn't they didn't really attack podcasts we see how spotify's done over the last few years taking up taking on that space and their their previous ad businesses were kind of they didn't really commit too much energy to them whatsoever so so yeah it looks like microsoft is really the the only one who has the the pockets and the interest in buying it yeah and another question i kind of had when i was reading this story is Will Byte or why is ByteDance so willing to sell TikTok that easily? Well, the thing is, we don't know they are. They ByteDance yeah. have come out and said, you know, this <laughs> this all seems like one side of the conversation. You know, it's uh, it's like someone coming up to you and saying, oh yeah, we're getting married next September, and the fiance knowing absolutely nothing about this. <laughs> you know, yeah. they um, they there really does seem to be an element of like this is all happening on the U.S. side with all the US parties kind of coming to an arrangement that ByteDance seem to be, it's ByteDance and the Chinese government, by the way, going, hold on a second, what do you, no, that's not happening. Sorry, Roy, but it is quite interesting that uh, yesterday, I think it was, or the day before Instagram launched its TikTok competitor Reels. So they've obviously been building yeah. this for a while and it's a, it's a kind of speaks to what James was saying about like how uh, Zuckerberg and co would love to own TikTok, but in just the, the acquisition would never go through. So they're going to give it a shot themselves. And they've worked the numbers. They know they're going to get X tens of or even hundreds of millions of users and hurt TikTok somewhat. And and then it kind of brings you right back around to Microsoft's motivation. And and I think it was New York Times during the week I read said that, you know, they uh, Microsoft, uh, you know, have a history of acquisition in the social space with LinkedIn at 26 billion, but it was the reliably sober platform is what they called it. And now yeah. they suddenly have to figure out how do they deal with all the headaches to go with, with one of these fast moving social media platforms and everything to do with uh, freedom of speech versus saying things that, that might offend people in the highest of places. 
Wasn't there a rumour last year sometime that Microsoft were going to introduce like a stories like feature on LinkedIn, you know, so that that on your LinkedIn account, you could like have like uh, visual stories. And it just sounded like the the seventh circle of hell to me. <laughs> so LinkedIn please, uh, already the seventh circle of hell. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, like my biggest fear personally is that they somehow try to integrate TikTok into LinkedIn and just create this absolute Frankenstein <laughs> monster. <laughs> I read yesterday somebody did a back of the envelope calculation saying that uh, off the back of the announcement, Microsoft's market cap is up 80 billion uh, off the reports of buying TikTok. And even uh, on the expensive end, that means they can acquire TikTok and still net 30 billion in new in new value. So <laughs> in, in wow. the flash That's analysis, incredible. they I know it's it is it is incredible. It's very hard to uh, it makes sense of it all. Well, for me, as in to see a new platform garner, what is it, seven or eight hundred million new uh, users in no time at all is, is quite incredible. And, and I guess that's what they're they're all vying for at the moment. Absolutely. So staying with big tech then, and Rory, as you mentioned, it was a historical day in Washington last week when the CEOs of Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Google all virtually appeared in front of the House Judiciary Committee to face questions over alleged antitrust practices within their respective companies. The hearing lasted for an exhausting six hours and almost 220 questions were asked by both Republican and Democratic representatives. In an article written by Casey Newton of The Verge afterwards, he compared the hearing to the feeling of endlessly scrolling through a social media feed, questions jumping from one person to another and nothing of real value actually being learned. Um, We're going to talk about the Amazon portion of the hearing in the Jargon Busters section of the podcast, but I'm curious to hear if there are any other parts that stood out to you, um, Rory, as as very important kind of for investors in these companies to, to tune in on. I mean, Casey Newton was said it quite well. I mean, I tried to watch it. It was a real circus. Um, these hearings have really become like a, a joke, really. At, at, at times, you can tell that the people asking the questions have been schooled quite well by their, their aides, but really have very little knowledge of how tech works, of the yeah. implications of of, of uh of acquisitions, the likes which which we saw with uh, Facebook and Instagram, and um, there was there's an awful lot of you know petty cheap shots being thrown around. The Democrats, for their part, were obviously very angry about the Russian hack and how that influenced the last election. Made those feelings very clear. The Republican side of the of the House was going heavily against Facebook and Google and Twitter. Strangely, we weren't even there. Uh, about about censoring right wing opinions on their sites, um, Google and like you know we could go through this. There was a huge amount kind of happened. Of what I think is going to end up be quite little relevance. But at one point, Mark Zuckerberg did get caught admitting that Facebook had bought Instagram in order to quash them as a competitor, which is very anti competitive, and he could get in some trouble over that. Um, one of the weird things was that Apple made some very good points. Tim Cook, I think, defended himself very well, even though he was he was hit quite hard about you know the fact that Apple Apple kind of seemed like a strange person or a strange company to be there, given that they like they don't even own the majority share of a of the smartphone market. And Tim Cook made the point very a good few times that you know they're they're not about being the biggest; they're about being the best, and that's why they are so uh, successful in what they do. Um, I, if I was Google, I would be quite worried. It came yeah. across very clearly that Google has very few friends 
uh, in that committee, they were being attacked from all sides on multiple occasions. A lot, of, a lot of it related to the fact that Google had pulled out of a number of government military contracts that they didn't want to be part of. So that was kind of uh, that whole kind of boycott of those military contracts was started by employees, and there was now the Republicans were asking questions about, you know, is is Google anti-American? Is it is it does it want to help China versus Google versus America? Some very kind of wild accusations being floated around, and it became quite clear that there was no one in there that was that was going to come to Google's defense at any point, and that they could be probably the one slapped hardest when this does eventually come to to action being taken by by the committee. Yeah, look, it's 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 funny. We we, we don't know what's going to happen from this. This is all. It's all very much so voting uh, yeah. for a lot of for for an awful lot of us. Again, like I said, people don't really the the implications of what what is happening is very much misunderstood by the people asking the questions, and they really do need to kind of switch these to a, a format where you have experts who know about this. You know, if you could get someone like Ben Thompson from Sotechery up there grilling these people, you'd learn an awful lot more, and you'd end up with much better results. And um, you know, antitrust is incredibly important to the tech sector. The entire sector, the entire tech sector is built on antitrust. It's, it's built yeah. on breaking up mass monopolies and letting smaller companies innovate in the space. And you think of everything from, you know, the the personal computer to the internet to uh, GPS, smartphone technology. This has all come about through antitrust and through the government stopping one company owning the entire space. And so this is a good thing. It should it should happen. We want to see companies being broken up. We want to see non anti competitive behaviors and uh, and companies being held accountable when they do break the rules, which it seems like a lot of them are. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so what do you think the chances are of Facebook being forced to sell Instagram? That's the big question I think on everyone's lips. Mm, I, I, I wouldn't like to bet on it. I do think they are going to have to be very careful of how they proceed acquisition-wise in the in the future. Even what I saw them do with Reels, Emma, you mentioned that they're they're actually now uh, there's reports that they're paying some of TikTok's most popular users to switch over to Reels. Wow. Now, like if that's not anti-competitive, I don't know what is. They're 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 walking a very fine line. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, if they split up Facebook and Instagram. It would be accretive to shareholders. You would have two very, very successful companies. Uh, yeah. I think. I think Instagram could grow faster than the the, the native mm. face, uh, Facebook platform if it was an uh, individual company or a, or. A, yeah. So, you know, if you're a shareholder in Facebook, you should probably be hoping that these things happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. Um, so let's take a look then at everything that's happening in my Wall Street at the moment. So we're at the start of the new month. So that means we also have a new stock of the month selection. August's pick is an e-commerce company you might consider as the complete antithesis of Amazon. But its growth over the last few months has definitely been something to get excited about. Of course, a new stock of the month also means a new stock of the month podcast. Remember, this is an exclusive show that you can only find in the My Wall Street app where Rory and I chat about the most recent stock of the month selection and go into much more detail on it. Members of the My Wall Street community will have access to this podcast on Monday, August 10th. However, if you're not a member of My Wall Street yet, you can get a free trial of the service and listen into this podcast and all of the rest of them by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. Let's go on to Jargon Busters then. And Evan, I'm going to come to you first. This is actually a question I know you've answered a few times, but maybe with the, the current marketing conditions, it's, it's worth revisiting. Um, Taylor Stafford on Twitter asked you, um, about your experience as an investor during the tech bubble and the lessons you learned that could be applied to the current market right now. 
Yeah, so the, the tech bubble had its 20th birthday this year. And despite that, I remember its phases, uh, the kind of stages within that uh, event uh, very clearly, as if it was only last year. So I guess, being as I spoke about it before, I thought I'd just take a slightly different angle uh, and describe how I recall the, the events. And, and I'm going to describe, yeah. I suppose, four chapters or four forces that in hindsight were very clear. And I think I can see certain elements of them in existence today. So the first force that was in play in the run-up to the year 2000 was revolutionary mechanics, is the way I'm describing it. Or, in other words, online brokers. So there was this new machine available to every person which allowed them to participate in the stock market. And in fact, while everyone... I think most people today think of Robin Hood when they think of zero commission brokers. Um, there was a an online broker with zero commissions years ago called um, called Zeco, and they um, were uh, zero commission. They had the same promise and the same functionality as Robin Hood, slightly less elegant to look at. But you know these revolutionary mechanics were in existence in the run-up in the late 90s, so in late 90s, early 2000s, that online brokers suddenly made stock investing available to everybody. And when you look at today, the uh, equivalent is, of course, in-app brokerages. And Robinhood is the great big example of today. And retail investors, I believe, have so far accounted for about 25% of stock market activity in 2020, which compares to about 10% last year in 2019. So retail investors, there's a body of heat there, which has been generated by a couple of different forces. But in essence, what we're looking at in the year 1999 and in the year 2020 is, let's call it revolutionary mechanics, which is the ability for every person to do what they feel like when they feel like it. The second thing on the run up to 2000 was a team. And the team then was the internet. And I don't really need to rake over that. Uh, Everybody knows about the tech bubble, or at least has read about it and has lived through it. So um, everyone knows that internet businesses were on the rise in late 90s and um, had their day of reckoning starting in around May 2000. And today's theme is coronavirus. And although it's obviously a very, very different theme to the internet, where some of the greatest businesses of our lives are being conceived and built, um, you know, uh, there, there is somewhat a lot of energy going into stock investing, which has been in part fueled by coronavirus, more people at home, yeah. more time to think, more time to use these new revolutionary mechanics. And according to the New York Times coronavirus tracker, at the moment, there's 27 vaccines in human trials. Um, and the share price of all of the co- publicly listed companies that are even approximately aiming in the right direction at a cure has soared on the belief that they will succeed and if when they do the economics that follows will result in an untold riches. So there's been a divergence of of optimism and realism, certainly in the vaccine market. And yeah. well, you know, the bad news is that uh, of the 165 or so companies in the category of, of, of coronavirus cure, um, the probability that any of them will succeed is actually quite low, which is not good. I mean, when you look at the chief medical officer of Moderna sold all his shares last week and the share price barely moved. And that's an information laden uh, trade, if you ask me. So here's a, a business that the world is getting behind because we all want one or more of these companies to succeed. But what I see is a sectorial bubble for sure. 
Like I just yeah. see that in certainly in the in in the field of vaccines and that specific, I suppose, segment of, of vaccines and cures and therapies, there is a bubble because not all of these businesses will succeed, but they are all priced as if they will. So that to me is the parallel of the theme of 2000. So first, as I said, was revolutionary mechanics. So we now have our brokerages, zero commission on our phones and a theme which you know, whether you agree with me or not, is kind of fueled by coronavirus. The third of four is uh, discussion forums, which have a propensity to fuel group think. And back in the year 1999, 2000, Yahoo Finance was the place where all stock investors went to converse with each other. And today it's Twitter. And both Yahoo Finance yeah. in 99 and Twitter today offer massive value and huge information sources. But they also are dangerous traps, you know, because of groupthink. They both have trolls, had trolls. I remember in 99, you'd have somebody just do nothing but create angst and noise and, and voices of dissent. Uh, um, as they do today, but effectively, there has always been a place for people to go to voice their opinion. And I actually, I don't know if Rory, or James, uh, you detect this, but there's far, far, far more discussion and conversation going on about stock market and Twitter now than yeah. I think at any point since we founded the business. So, like, I just think Twitter is hotter than ever. So there's heat going into the discussion forums, which I suppose has the propensity to fuel groupthink. And the final of four themes that I see in parallel between 20 years ago and today is that there are diamonds in the mud after the landslide. Like, for example, Amazon floated in and around May 1997. So whether you bought at its IPO or at its dot-com peak or after the dot-com meltdown in 2001, um, your thousands would now be worth millions. So yeah. if there is some kind of downturn. And you know what? I've no evidence that there will be a downturn. You can harbor an opinion based on, on, on data points that there might be a downturn. But if there is a downturn, there will be diamonds in the mud after the landslide. And they are kind of the four, I suppose, parallels that I just tried to pull out to give a different angle. So revolutionary mechanics, a team, um, discussion forums, and then knowing that quality businesses are absolutely out there today. And if there is a downfall in stocks on the whole, we will just be able to buy some of the world's greatest businesses at discounted prices. Absolutely. That's really helpful. Thanks, Emmett. Uh, let's move on to the second question then. And this comes from Franco Wong. Uh, Rory, I'm going to throw this over to you. Um, and this was is about Amazon and their uh, antitrust showing. Um, and Franco asked, how do we think antitrust laws would play out for Amazon specifically? Um, in particular, focus, I think, on their access to third party seller information on their platform. Yeah, so we learned quite a bit about Amazon's uh, business practices at the hearing, one of which was that, you know, th there was quite a few things. One that I thought interesting was that there's a the buy box algorithm, which they use to kind of promote products, uh, favors products that are shipped with Prime and Amazon Fulfillment Services. So as someone pointed out, I mean, that's that pretty much effectively compels independent sellers to use Amazon's fulfillment services in order to get good placements. That could definitely be considered anti-competitive. Um, yeah. he, he was also asked about this this using of the seller data, which was reported by the Wall Street Journal back in April, I think, and Bezos said that he can, I quote, cannot guarantee Amazon employees to not use the data about indep of, of independent sellers to create the company's own products. 
he said that's a violation of the company's policy, but again, he said he can't guarantee it hasn't happened. So, yeah. you know, but, and we, we, we know it. We know it does. We know that Amazon is watching what sells best on its, on its uh, platform and creating its own basic lines to essentially build up its own retail um, business. Um, they were also accused of uh, being anti-competitive in terms of the companies they support through the Alexa fund. There was a company called Nucleus which said that Amazon stole its smart display and home intercom concept. So the, you know, there's an awful lot of accusations lobbied at Amazon. They think they do have quite a lot to answer to. What's interesting, and I got, you know, I'm not an antitrust lawyer of any sort, and there'd be better people to talk to about this. But it seems to me in the past, antitrust is very much revolved around the customer and what makes things better for the customer. So if if you're doing something, if it's anti-competitive, they don't seem to really mind that as much as long as the the customer wins in the end, as long as it ends up with lower prices for the American consumer. And, you know, Amazon has a very strong case to say, well, look, you know, we are providing that service. We are taking things like HDMI cables, which typically cost, you know, something like 30 to 40 dollars for one cable. And we're selling them for 10 dollars per cable Uh, so they can make the case that they are driving down prices for consumers. And that's going to be something that any committee hearing or any kind of legislation going forward is going to have to address is this. What is the standard now? What are we calling anti-competitive and what are we saying is, is going to be illegal going forward? Because Amazon is most certainly driving down prices and uh, it's going to be very hard to argue against that. So we, we don't know what's going to happen. Look, like these antitrust hearings, as I said earlier, are, this is very early days. This is the start of a process that could lead so many different directions. Um, I know Elizabeth Warren's already uh, throwing out some, some, uh, some remedies that would not be pleasant for Amazon, um, but look, we just have to see what's going to happen going forward. It's, as I said, it's still, it's still, it's, it's, this is the, this is the start, not the, not the end of this. Yeah, and it, it seems to me anyway that like the immediate focus is on the likes of Facebook and Google that Amazon might kind of be able to fly under the radar a little bit for another while in terms of anti-competitiveness. There's other obviously other issues, but yeah, I mean, look, the thing with Facebook and Google was that a huge amount of the 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 questions directed at them had nothing to do with antitrust. You know, it was very much about, there was questions about uh, tempering of the elections. There was questions about um, the Google and, as I mentioned earlier, it's its relationship with the uh, U.S. military. So a few people forgot that there was this hearing was about antitrust and anti-competitive behavior. But, you know, if you think about the upcoming election, you can understand that the the focus on Facebook and Google is and, and Twitter, I suppose, is, is much more, and pressing than the antitrust elements. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Rory. Um, So let's move on to the elevator pitch then to finish out the show. So Emmett, a couple of weeks ago, you posted a poll on Twitter asking your followers to pick one of four public companies that they think will be the largest by 2030. All four of these companies were worth under $20 billion at the time you posted the poll. And they were all pretty well-known consumer-facing brands. Um, the response to the poll was actually pretty impressive. It was almost a completely even split across all four companies. So for this week's elevator pitch, I want you guys to pick your favorite of those four. Uh, the four you tweeted, Emmett, were iRobot, Pinterest, Peloton, or Beyond Meat. Rory, I'm going to come to you first because I think I already know your answer. Yeah, I'm going to sound like a broken record. The, the, the elevator pitches for the last uh, couple of weeks have... <laughs> Meant I think I've chosen Peloton like every single yeah. time for three or four weeks in a row now. Next week's so one would be Rory. Just pick any company up. that's not Peloton. Any company that's not Peloton would be uh, a good one. Yeah, look, look, I, you know, in case people haven't, don't know, 
I'm a big fan of Peloton. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant product. I think uh, they're creating a recurring revenue platform that is going to surprise all of us, uh, even with the the um, rapid rise the company has seen over the last couple of the stock has seen since we added it about three or four months ago. Yeah. Um, you know, other than that, not much else I can say. I think, uh, oh, I mean, like as a side one, if I was going to pick number two, I thought Pinterest had a fantastic quarter. Um, it was uh, July stock of the month, and the, the the numbers coming out were very impressive. Beats on the top and bottom in in what was a very challenging environment. So I'm I'm interested in Pinterest as well. Yeah, it, it, Pinterest specifically was July's stock of the month, and what is it up now? It's up like forty percent, forty eight percent at the moment since it, we picked who's, it. So. Who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> Rory, don't lie. I see the the spreadsheets in your laptop, and how often you look at them. Um, <laughs> Emmett, we'll come to you next. What, which of those four companies do you think will be largest by 2030? Yeah, it's funny because I find it easier to select which one I think ranks in fourth place. And for me, that would be Beyond Meat, not simply because there's so many other businesses, you know, looking at pea-based protein meat substitutes. And second, I suppose, thing I'd like to consider is the size of the business today, you know, you know, versus this potential growth. So I, I'm kind of torn between iRobot and Peloton. I think iRobot has for yeah. years been ignored or its true value has been missed. And that is a something you tend to see and can go on for very, very many years until it's unlocked. Uh, but I agree with everything that Rory has said. I think Peloton and Pinterest are both have something very unique. They have that uh, they own the space or at least the, the mind space occupancy, if you like, for their, their respective fields. I love them both. So if I had to pick one, I'm going to go with iRobot. Just uh, it's a wild one, but that's 2030. So we're talking t uh, 10 more years growth. And I think considering iRobot's current yeah. market position and R&D and, and yeah, I'll go with iRobot. Your Twitter followers don't agree. There was Beyond Meat was the one who came out, the, the kind of marginal winner there. Oh, but, yeah. Um, I suppose we'll, if the podcast is still going in 10 years, we'll come back and, and see how our predictions are. Uh, it's going to be called Badger Watch then. Badger Watch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start this at the end of the show again. <laughs> so that's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. It'll really help us out. From all of us here, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.